cystic fibrosis is something that I feel like we will have a genetic treatment for that maybe in a, in another decade because cystic fibrosis is, is one of those uh, those diseases you hear about constantly because it's a disease that comes about because of a single letter being missed out in a gene and that is something that a lot of biotech companies are working towards and also and also mainstream pharmaceutical companies are working towards finding a drug using genome editing technologies and a few other genetic therapy-based approaches. So my feeling is we're actually making rapid progress on that, and maybe it wouldn't be, uh, the day wouldn't be far off when we have a drug that can efficiently address cystic fibrosis in patients. And when that day comes, my feeling is its accessibility and how expensive or inexpensive it's going to be is going to come down to the, to the basic structure of healthcare in that country. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. You're probably familiar with the term Pandora's box. Well, today we're opening it. We're opening it wide and we're seeing what happens. We're diving deep into genetic editing and looking at the future of humanity when we can, in fact, transform ourselves and manufacture our own evolution, a time which is coming now. Today we've got Ashwin Sitharaman on the program. He's a molecular genetics and cell development researcher at the University of Toronto, focused on understanding life at its most fundamental level. He's currently focused on unraveling the genetic interaction networks that underlie human disease using CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing technology and he's examining fighting rare genetic diseases using CRISPR. In today's episode, we discuss the future of CRISPR genetic engineering and why personalized medicine is closer than you think, how CRISPR and gene drive technology could have butterfly effect-like unintended consequences, why we need to discuss the ethical implications of genetic editing and why we need to do it now, the reason Ashwin is cautious with CRISPR technology and updates on recent cancer problems coming from CRISPR, and how we as a species can eradicate malaria and all other forms of disease using CRISPR. And now, without further ado, I give you Ashwin Sitharaman. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So CRISPR is something that's been on the scene for uh, for the last three or four years. And now, you know, like as we know, we see it on popular media and everything, and it's taken a life of its own. So to put it in a nutshell, what CRISPR is, is, um, is basically a method that, that allows us to make highly precise and targeted changes in, in our genome. And this can be used for a variety of purposes. So the whole idea about personalized medicine is, uh, so what, 
So one of the things that we've learned over the past couple of decades is that uh, our current way of administering care to patients is kind of general. In other words, we use uh, one treatment for all individuals. So like if you have a headache, we give you one kind of pill and pretty much that's the same kind of pill that everybody has. So if you have one type of cancer, that's unfortunately the same, that's the same yardstick that we use. So one thing that we've come to appreciate because of the work that we've been doing in the field of, of genomics is that everybody's genome is slightly different from everyone else's. And while there is great deal of similarities, between our genomes, it is those small differences that actually make a huge impact on the way we respond to different treatment options. So uh, two individuals with the exact same disease may react very differently to the same medicine that is prescribed. So going forward, the scientific communities actually, and also the larger medical community, is excited about the prospect of developing a standard of care that is based on not generalizations, but treating each patient differently based on their genome. We're not there yet, but this is where we're heading towards. So hopefully, maybe in the next decade or two, personalized care would look like you would walk into a doctor's office and they would take a little bit of your DNA and get it sequenced and they will analyze all of your different genes and how they respond to each other in their environment. And a medicine that a formulation would be based on your genome. And CRISPR is one of those tools that can aid in this process. And the implications are enormous, both for good and potential misuse. Before we jump into that, though, I saw, uh, I saw an article recently, something, something going wrong with CRISPR cells, something to do with um, mm -hmm. disruption and causing cancer. <laughs> right. So um, would you like me to elaborate on what that means? Yes, yes. Go, go into that, because CRISPR, in my opinion, is arguably the most important technology of the century. And yeah, would like to dive into that as much as possible. Sure. So I think one of the things that have also come up in the past three or four years is the advent of a large number of, of companies that are based on CRISPR-based therapeutics. So like we're now gearing towards uh, countries like China that are geared up to test CRISPR-based drugs in humans. And actually, clinical trials were about to get the green light in the States to actually test CRISPR-based drugs for, for patients with, with certain types of cancers. And this was based on the hope that uh, CRISPR so far represents the most specific tool that humans have in, in making changes in our genome. However, one of the ramifications is anytime you come in from the outside, so to speak, and make changes in our genome or edit letters, even if it's a minuscule change, you have to look at that change in the context of everything else in our genomes. And that is something which is not easy to do. And that's a lot of work goes into that. And one of the things that um, the scientific community is now starting to appreciate is the fact that maybe CRISPR can make highly specific changes in the genome. Yes, that's for sure. However, as a byproduct of just using CRISPR in your cells, there may be certain unforeseen effects. So what this paper that recently came out suggests is that so this paper used uh, the CRISPR-based technology to make, uh, make highly specific changes in one gene. However, what they noticed was, apart from that small change that they made in the gene, there were huge deletions, as we call it, in the gene. So that means a chunk of DNA went missing. And that is, and the authors of the study attribute that to um, off-target effects of the CRISPR system, which shouldn't necessarily be there. And they, they have also identified this as something that 
would be routinely missed by other DNA sequencing technologies that are employed in labs that use CRISPR. So in other words... Um, You're looking for a needle in a haystack. Exactly. And also the thing is, these changes that are, that are occurring, these off-target effects, they're not something that's occurring in the, uh, in the place that you're looking for. So in other words, you won't even know where to look to begin with. So that requires, an, that requires a very painstaking look at the entire genome. So you have to scan every single gene in the genome to see what the ramifications of that is. And, uh, you know, this is something that's not, you know, it's not easy to do. And it's also very expensive. So most labs that use CRISPR to just to make small changes in a gene uh, in a cell to study its effects, they don't routinely do that. However, when you're looking at it in the context of creating CRISPR-based medicines to put inside human patients, this is something you should absolutely keep an eye on. And so for that reason, I think there's been a, they have actually introduced a lot of, uh, of caution into the system. Yeah, it's um, great power and great responsibility. So is this something where there's going to be overhauls of past tests to do follow-ups on that? My feeling is this is something, uh, you know what, the, uh, usually as it happens in, in our medical research, you know, every once in a while, there comes a technology that uh, seems to change everything. And it, it, initially, there is a lot of hype around that and people are excited and people are just uh, thrilled that we have a technology like this. And then comes uh, the adverse effects of having such a technology because you haven't fully understood it and you became too excited too early. And so then there, the same hype and excitement turns to fear. And eventually it, um, it blows over and we will develop a newer version of the same technology, except that this one has all the stops in place. So my feeling is we're still, we haven't uh, reached the full potential of CRISPR yet. So I, my feeling is we're still going through, as I call it, the growing pains of the CRISPR period. So these are all things that are part of that growing pain. And my feeling is maybe within the next decade, we would have a slightly different version of CRISPR that we're currently using, which has, and also the, the surrounding technology to make sure that we check everything in a not so expensive manner, because this is something that's also worth mentioning, because in order to, to sequence a human genome a decade ago was phenomenally expensive compared to what it is today. So today it's possible to sequence a human genome for a few thousand dollars, whereas a 10 years ago, it was more than $100,000. So my feeling is in 10 years from now, the technology that is required to scan the entire genome and make sure that everything is in its proper place may actually come down to come down substantially that it may just be another routine experiment that is done by most labs and also most medical laboratories around the world. So I'm actually, uh, while I, well, my thoughts on this is right now, I'm very, very cautious about CRISPR-based technologies being used in humans, but I'm also very optimistic about where this is going in the future. And I think that would be descriptive of a lot of people that understand the, the ramifications. But in terms of where we're headed, if it is a scenario where there is risk, but also great reward to be had, does that mean countries with more lax standards will be the ones that jump ahead, specifically China? You know, that's a good question. And uh, my feeling is, yes, because one of the things about right from uh, ways by which we learn a lot about technology is also through, through making mistakes. By making mistakes, although the cost is enormous, we have the, you know, like we learn a lot through that process. And my, I would, my approach to science in general is uh, not to advocate making costly mistakes, especially when it uh, involves people. However, one of the things that we constantly see uh, coming out of, out of China is like, 
The good thing is their approach to innovation and their the investment that they are making in knowledge production is enormous right now. And that's actually kind of admirable of, of China from where it was like maybe like 40 years ago. So in that respect, they're kind of like at the cutting edge. Our country is in serious trouble. China. I beat China all the time. China has our jobs. Our enemies are getting stronger and stronger by the day. We need somebody that can take the brand of the United States and make it great again. However, one of the uh, one of the harshest statements that you know people in science make around China is they're also they're more open to taking risks because they uh, it looks like they believe that certain things can be controlled and uh, certain I mean the effects of introducing new kinds of treatment options can be controlled in an environment where they introduce just very tiny changes in one gene and they think that by introducing just that one change, whatever effects that comes from that will be controlled in that one patient. You know, but the, uh, but the broader thing here is that it's like opening a door. Once you open a door, other people will be encouraged to do the same kind of things. And we don't know where these doors exist. And many times we hear about only the most prominent experiments being done. So there may be a lot going on in the background that the mainstream scientific community does not get a chance to hear about. What are some of the things that I haven't or the listeners haven't heard about that's going on, the cutting edge of uh, genetic editing and technology? I mean, there's, um, so for example, the things that excites us right now is uh, a few things. So for one, we um, in Toronto, so what? So one of the things that we're doing is uh, we're using the CRISPR-based technology to carry out what is known as, as genetic interactions. And genetic interactions is something like, uh, it's, it's similar to looking at the cell, but in, to give you an analogy, it is like having a Facebook for the cell or an Instagram for a cell. So in other words, most of uh, what, what we've learned about the role of genes in development and uh, in disease is the fact that you know, it's popular out there that one gene, when it's mutated, it gives rise to a disease. So it's uh, very common for people to say that if you have a mutation in this particular gene, you have a greater risk of developing breast cancer or Huntington's or, you know, whatever. However, one of the things that we're now starting to appreciate really is that it's no longer meaningful to look at the role of genes in isolation. In other words, looking at one gene is not going to be meaningful in terms of developing a cure for a disease or a condition. And so, so much so that we now start to look at genes as networks. So in other words, in order to gain a deeper insight into a condition or a disorder, we need to look at a gene, not on what it does on its own, but in the context of all the other genes that it communicates with, that it interacts with. So in other words, it's kind of like saying, uh, if I get an opportunity to know all of your friends, then that gives me a better idea about who you may be. So what we do in our lab is, so for example, I work on a disease called NGLY1, that's N-G-L-Y-1. So when this gene is mutated, it gives rise to a, a devastating health disorder that mainly affects, affects children. It's a rare disease, and we currently don't have any cures for it. So what we do to approach uh, understanding how this disease develops, what may be happening in the cell, what we do is we use a CRISPR-based platform to, first of all, remove the activity of the NGLY1 gene in normal human cells. And then we ask, how does this affect every other gene? In the cell. So, in other words, does removing NGLY1 have an impact on gene X, gene Y, gene A, gene B, gene C? And we have over 20,000 genes like this. So, by looking at the context 
of uh, removing one gene and comparing it with how every other gene gets affected in the cell this gives us a really good idea about the biological role of a of a said gene in question and we will be able to make insights into gene functions that we would normally not be able to do with the conventional approach of just looking at one gene equals uh, this disease and i think that's been how science has been done for a very long time but this has completely changed uh, in the last 10 years or so and apart from this the other cutting edge tools that we also have is in the realm of uh, of cancer research where we now after the crispr uh, platform came on the scene we now have technologies to fight cancer like we never done before and this also brings us into a realm of this uh, a treatment platform known as immunotherapies and what immunotherapies involve is using the patient's own cells and editing them with the crispr technology to make them highly specific towards seeking out and killing cancer cells when they are put back in the body so we take your own cells engineer them and put them back into your body and your cells will take care of your cancer so in other words if this proves successful potentially in the future we would eliminate the need for for traditional cancer drugs which are actually highly toxic to the to you know like your normal cells so people that's why when they take these chemotherapeutic drugs they react adversely so you're killing the cancer cells but you're burning the the forest down to kill the bad guy in it so to speak whereas with uh, what with the kind of therapies that we're developing now with genome editing techniques we can get very very fast at killing cancer cells with minimal toxic effects of the body in research how do you take into account epigenetics so i may have the same dna as someone else but grow up in different situation environmentally i may have consumed mm-hmm. different food etc and that affects gene expression exactly so this is something that uh, is still being spoken about so in other words the the jury is still out on fully understanding and fleshing out epigenetics but uh, one thing that we know for sure is that epigenetics is a real thing and it needs to be taken seriously so by definition epigenetics is something that it's an effect that is created on a, on your dna without actually changing the letters of your dna so what that entails is there are certain molecules that can be juxtaposed to your dna without altering your your genetic code in any way and this juxtaposition it can affect gene expression it can upregulate certain genes downregulate them so and that has implications right from i mean in its most basic level how a cell responds to environmental stress how it processes energy and so that's at a cellular level and at the level of an organism that can have profound effects on how somebody's someone's behavior is altered the kind of moods that they have the uh, their ability to respond to stress and their immune systems so we are still fleshing out some of the details the one thing that we can be confident about though is that while epigenetics was hotly debated about 20 years ago right now it's taken very seriously that this is something that uh, has a profound effect on on an organism's development and behavior it's our nature and nurture question that comes down to well both so with with uh with the future that we're headed towards what would you say in terms of a time horizon let's say i'm a billionaire i want to enhance myself and become stronger smarter sexier etc when do you see us starting to have not necessarily mainstream but commercially available technologies to self enhance more so than just nutrition i mean that's a good question the um uh, i'm not sure if uh, you know it 
it remains to be seen what form that would take because one of the things that still a question for for scientists is should such technologies be developed in the first place that this is one of those uh, cautionary doors that once you open it there's kind of like no turning back so we're we haven't opened that door yet so there is still a question as to whether we should first of all develop such technologies where we can enhance ourselves so it's one thing to treat diseases and stuff but it's another question to ask whether you know you know like if i'm not happy with uh with the way that i look or the way my kid looks or something can i get it genetically altered can i choose to have a child with these attributes can i choose to improve certain areas and not because and also if such technology is available then the question is is it going to be accessible to everybody or is it going is it only going to be accessible to a to a select few that have the ability to pay for such therapies because chances are that when it's developed it's not going to be cheap and easily accessible to the vast majority serum infusion beginning in 3 2 1 Now I'm still stuck. So, I'm not sure as to how fast or what form will it take for us to get there. But if I had to just blindly guess, at what point would we would our current civilization have the ability to create such things and make it possible if it passes the ethical guidelines to be available for the public? I would say we're not actually that far off the rate at which the technologies are improving these days. I would say such things might be happen within the within the next decade or two. And if it can happen, it will happen. It's impossible to stop because people will get advantages. If you're going to if you're going to die if XYZ reason you want to game the stock market, you want to become etc cetera, etc. Cetera, there will be black market uses and thus it will advance most likely in the oh, country absolutely. the ones with the least regulation. Oh, absolutely. So then the question becomes, does it only stay in the the back alleys so to speak or does it go mainstream and realistically it'll probably go mainstream because that's just how things that's how things kind of work which means the technology cost question that you brought up earlier what are your thoughts on the ethics on the ethics of whether we should have such technologies whether we should have it and how essentially when the technology comes out it'll be wicked expensive so just the rich people will get better you know i mean my feeling is that's also kind of the way in which our larger society is currently structured So in other words this calls into question about how the how the healthcare system is administered to the general public. So for example, I like the Canadian system in the sense that we have cradle to grave healthcare and also things are in place such that most medicines, most life-saving drugs are more more accessible to pretty much anyone in the society compared to other countries, right? So in this regard, like for example, there are certain cancer drugs that uh, if you are in in some asian countries so like for example i have a lot of family in india and i know that the cost of treating cancer in india is enormous so unless you have the means uh to pay for your drug you're not you're not going to have the ability to access some of the more critical drugs that are needed to address certain kinds of cancers however that's not true for a country like canada where because of our healthcare system most life-saving drugs are readily accessible to the vast majority of the population so i feel like it would boil down to similar situation like if we were to develop these uh these genetic treatments for many critical diseases so i'm not talking about genetic enhancements which would fall under the category of of you know it's kind of like now going to it's kind of like uh getting cosmetic surgery 
So in other words, it's not essential. So if you want to do it, then if you have the means to pay for it, so be it. Whereas I think genetic treatments for most uh, most diseases, like for example, cystic fibrosis is something that I feel like we will have a genetic treatment for that maybe in, a, in another decade. Because cystic fibrosis is, is one of those uh, those diseases you hear about constantly because it's a disease that comes about because of a single letter being misspelled in a gene. And that is something that a lot of biotech companies are working towards and also and also mainstream pharmaceutical companies are working towards finding a drug using genome editing technologies and a few other genetic therapy-based approaches. So my feeling is we're actually making rapid progress on that, and maybe it wouldn't be uh, the day wouldn't be far off when we have a drug that can efficiently address cystic fibrosis in patients. And when that day comes, my feeling is its accessibility and how expensive or inexpensive it's going to be is going to come down to the to the basic structure of healthcare in that country. I'm hopeful of Canada. If you're in the U.S., you're screwed. So the the cosmetic analogy, I think it breaks down a little though. So there's a difference between getting a bigger butt and getting a bigger brain. The bigger brain is going to help you become more successful, realistically speaking. So you could have a flywheel situation where the rich become smarter and richer and live longer. <laughs> no, that is true. But the thing is, right, like it's, I mean, it goes back to how we started our conversation in a sense, we would have to understand the ramifications of what that entails. Maybe yeah. we understand the, uh, what it means to have a bigger butt, but having a bigger brain has other consequences that you cannot predict. What kind of individual would that create? What kind of thoughts would this individual have now? How would he approach life? What would, uh, what would the aspirations of such a person be? Would that be something that will uh, help society or would that be something that can turn against society? So in other words, you will have to, when you talk about genetic enhancements of any sort, however small it's going to be, you're going to have to really, really understand the ramifications of that in how it affects everything else. Can you talk a little bit about gene drives and the ability sure. to permanently edit evolution? Sure. So gene drives is something that, you know, it's one of those other, you know, I didn't have a chance to get into this earlier in the segment. This is another one of those cutting edge tools that we have based on, on CRISPR. So the concept of the gene drive is that so, in, so far in life, everything, so when an organism reproduces, its genes are passed down based on laws of genetics that are extremely well understood. And these genes are inherited by offsprings in, in a certain order. So in other words, there are probabilities of inheritance. So in other words, when we, when we take a fruit fly or when we take a mosquito and we mate it with another mosquito, we can very precisely understand how a particular gene from the parents are going to be inherited and in what frequency in the offspring. So in other words, if both parents have a mutation, let's say in gene X, we would know, and let's say if it, ha if it gives rise to 10 offsprings, we would be able to predict how many of those 10 will have inherited that loss of function mutation and will show an effect in their being. But what this also means is that we will also have the ability to know how many individuals will never be affected by a mutation in the parents. So we will have both ends of the spectrum. Does that make sense so far? That makes sense. Right. And this occurs because of what we understand from what uh, the work of, of Gregor Mendel more than uh, 100 years ago. So he postulated these laws of inheritance that's very, very, very precise all throughout nature. Now, what gene drive does is it defies Mendel's laws of genetics and inheritance. And what it does is it gives us the ability to intentionally 
transmit a genetic change that we are going to make in an organism that defies the laws of inheritance. So in other words, I can make sure that using a gene drive, I can create a genetic lesion in a gene in an organism, make sure that that particular mutation is inherited by every single offspring, which does not occur in nature. So in nature, because of the laws of inheritance of genes, only certain individuals in a population will be affected and certain individuals will not. So for example, the, the, to give you an example of what this means in the context of gene drive is that let's say there is a mosquito that gives rise to, to malaria. We've understood a key gene that is responsible for the mosquito's ability to transmit this disease. Now using a gene drive, I can go inside the mosquito's genome and using the CRISPR-based approach, or you know, in general, I can use any genome editing technology. It doesn't have to be CRISPR, but in this case, CRISPR has been widely associated with gene drives. So we can use CRISPR to make a highly targeted change in that mosquito's genome that will render that gene useless. It will affect the mosquito's ability to transmit malaria. Now, under, if under normal conditions, this gene will be inherited based on certain probabilities. So when this mosquito mates it will pass on this defective gene. However, it will also pass on a healthy version of the gene. We all have two copies of our gene. That's most organisms do. What we can now do is we have come up with a technology whereby we can prevent this process from happening in the normal streamlined manner. So in other words, we can force the mosquito to pass on the genetically modified version of its gene to every single organism of its offspring. And that way, within a couple of generations or more, we can pretty much have an entire species of mosquitoes that have an edited version of the gene that defies how normally genetic effects are propagated in the population. So we can speed up the process enormously because of our CRISPR-based manipulations. And we can also use that to make them all male, so all mosquitoes on Earth die. You're familiar with the phrase, man's reach exceeds his grasp. Is the lie? Man's grasp exceeds his nerve. Society only tolerates one change at a time. Mr. Angier, have you considered the cost of such a machine? Price is not an object. Perhaps not, but have you considered the cost? I'm not sure I follow. Go home. Forget this thing. I can recognize an obsession. No good will come of it. Well, hasn't good come of your obsessions? At first, but I followed them too long. I am their slave. And one day they will choose to destroy me. If you understand an obsession, then you know you won't change my mind. How do you think about the butterfly effect? when dealing with when dealing with your work oh all the time that's why every time we make a breakthrough in any one thing we always have like two camps of scientists one camp is people who are highly excited about just that discovery that has been made and the, the other camp are ones who are like highly cautious because they interpret that discovery in the context of everything else that is out there and where we also realize how little we understand about everything else that's out there so for example just on the subject of gene drives. So when we create something like a gene drive, we're looking at, say, one tiny aspect of it. So in, in this case, in our example, we're interested in ridding the world of, of malaria. So that's our end goal. And we come up with a gene drive-based approach to purge the world of malaria-causing mosquitoes. And you know what? Most likely, we might achieve that. We might be successful at eradicating malaria. However, we haven't, you know, unless... We've taken the time to plumb the depths of uh, what this means to the mosquito. Maybe you get rid of malaria. However, maybe it might introduce a small other genetic change in the mosquito that now gives rise to a new disease or something that the world has never seen before. Or it maybe it changes the, the behavior of the mosquito in such a way that maybe it alters the 
Maybe it alters the food chain in some way or the other. And this creates a ripple effect throughout the population. And ultimately, you know, one thing that humans don't realize is we're connected to everything else that is out there. Like if you get rid of one species, it will have a telling effect on us eventually. So we have to have a long-term view of any such thing. And how I approach my science all the time is, uh, is one of extreme caution in the sense like unless, I mean, there are two kinds of scientists scientists like me who are more fundamental biologists. So in other words, we don't um, tamper with, with nature. So we do all our experiments on cells and everything that are highly controlled in, in a lab setting. So nothing can leave the lab. But there are also uh, people who work with um, live insects and everything, and you create a change in the insect and you study it. And sometimes if these facilities are not well maintained, some of these modified organisms can escape into the wild. And when that happens, you're opening a Pandora's box. And nobody can predict how that will impact us because it's just too vast and too huge to predict. Our reach exceeds our grasp. We're, we're moving in that field and in those directions and a lot of exponential technologies. What other, what other technologies intersect with what you're working on? For us, one of the things that technology-wise that's making the, uh, our progress really fast is the way in which we can, we can, we can sequence genomes. So this is one thing that I can actually attest to just being... Uh, just from the time that I was a grad student. So a few years ago, when I was a graduate student, it's, you know, the kind of work that we're doing now, which is to look at how I describe looking at genetic interactions, which is to look at the context of a gene's function in regards to every other gene in the cell. Now, this kind of uh, experimentation and stuff involves a great deal of advancement in DNA sequencing. And this is something that's making quantum leaps. So just compared to four years ago, the technology we have to sequence DNA is hugely, hugely improved. So in other words, we're talking in terms of the quality of data. So how precise is the machine that can sequence the DNA? What is the rate of errors that the machine makes? And also the cost associated with it. That's one thing. But the other thing, so that's in terms of technology that uh, you know directly impacts my work. Of course, we've discussed uh, CRISPR-based technologies and editing tools and stuff like that, which I don't need to get into again. But one thing that I find has uh, really improved the quality of science everywhere is the fact that we communicate more through technologies like FaceTime, through Skype, through, uh, you know, like what we're on right now. So social media and communication technology has also hugely improved over the past 10 years from what I've seen. Like these days, for example, I attend a lot of conferences in science and we use Skype or we use WebEx where like 100 scientists or 200 scientists from different parts of the world can interface at the same time and we can share our findings very quickly. And we can also form collaborations more effectively because the quality of your communication is that much better. And this is something that wasn't available 10 years ago when I was a student. Uh, having a Skype-based meeting with somebody was a rare event. It was still available, but it wasn't something that is so normal these days. To talk about a conference that you attend using Skype is now considered very normal, whereas it was looked at as an odd event just 10 years ago. So my feeling is, as communication channels improve over and going forward within the next 5, 10 years, I'm actually very excited for... Uh, just that part of technology. I feel like we're like this makes the world m a much smaller place and a more accessible place. You must have a much better version of Skype than I do. Our, our Skype just seems like they, it goes back every time they <laughs> update it. It breaks the it breaks the system. 
I want to jump into something that's a little bit more on the, the personal and ethics side of things. So we've talked about we've talked about gene sequencing, the price is coming down. How about from an individual perspective, looking at do I get my genome sequenced? I know my wife was a little bit unsure about this because if you find problems, then what do you do? So how do, how do people think about this and how do you think about this? You know, this is actually, uh, what you're asking is a very good question. And I remember asking this exact question to a Nobel Prize winning scientist about 10 years ago. And I still remember his answer. And this was a 10-year-old answer. So maybe in today's world, it's slightly different, but it's vastly the same, which is he said to me, I asked him, like, you know, there are tests available now for uh, things like Huntington's or a few other genetic disorders. Like, you can know this, but should I know it? And if I know it, what is the use of it? Because for all of these conditions, there may not be a cure in sight. And just the knowledge that I'm going to develop this condition or disorder is going to be of little help to actually ease the symptoms or the suffering that I may eventually have. So in this case, don't you think ignorance is bliss? And his answer really surprised me. He said, yes, it is bliss. And unless you're just curious about knowing whether what you might eventually develop or not, today's technology doesn't offer that much in terms of curing you. However, if I get to know that I'm going to have a certain condition, but knowing that now and living my life in such a way that I can take steps to minimize the chances, that's a good thing. So for example, if I do know that I have a genetic lesion that puts me at a risk of developing Huntington's disease later on in my adulthood, it's possible that I may end up getting the disease at a much later stage, but there may be steps that I can take right now. So in other words, I understand what the disease is about, but I can also change my lifestyle, my eating habits, my exercise routine, and make certain changes to my lifestyle in such a way that I can maximize the likelihood of not getting there sooner. Does that make sense? So in other words, I'm not, I may not be cured of it yet if I develop it, but I can at least knowing that it is coming, I can make certain lifestyle choices that might for very well, for all you know, minimize my chances of getting it for a much longer time than what I would without that knowledge. And not only that, but you can change your professional focus to be something beneficial, not only to humanity, but to yourself. I know there, you know, just to uh, give you one more example, like, for example, there are tests that, uh, that, that are available for, for women. And a lot of women actually do take this test to see and assess their risk for, for getting breast cancers. And even uh, off late, Angelina Jolie, I believe, took this test and she found that she was in, in the group of women that were at a higher risk of getting, getting breast cancer. So she actually went and took preventive measures to avoid that from happening. Now, if hadn't she taken that test, it's not to say that she will develop breast cancer. We never know, but you're giving yourself the best chance of not getting it by having that information available. Yes and no. There's also the people that I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but there's also the people that create, if you go to a fortune teller and the fortune teller tells you, Ooh, I see a tall blonde man in your future. Hmm. You kind of also create, you kind <laughs> of also create that situation subconsciously because you know, that, that you know, that's the path you're on and you create the things you both attract and repel, so to speak. No, for sure. Like, for example, like I'm reminded of uh, a documentary that came about, uh, a few years ago, where Richard Dawkins, the famous evolutionary biologist from England, he had his DNA sequence, and I mean, not his, I mean, his entire genome sequence. And one of the predictions that came from his DNA sequencing is that he had the, I believe he had a propensity for developing liver disorders and stuff like that. So he actually said that based on those things, he has made sure that he doesn't consume that much alcohol and he's keeping an eye on that. So 
if he hadn't had that information, what is to say that he wouldn't hasten the process of developing that? If I did, if I knew that I'm at a certain risk for developing something, especially I think like liver disorder is a good example because it gives us something tangible to focus on. So if I know that based on my DNA that I'm at a higher propensity to develop liver disorders, that knowledge is going to be at the back of my mind every time I feel like uh, going on, on a binge drinking spree. And maybe because of that, I will change my habits in such a way that I will never drink beyond my limit. I will make sure that I eat healthy. I'll make sure that my diet is composed of uh, things that are liver healthy. So as a result of that, I may never develop any liver problems until maybe I'm in my late 60s or 70s or who knows, maybe never. But if I didn't know that, what is to say that I'm not that I'm going to make the same choices. I would probably make a very different set of life choices that might uh, end up getting me there to my liver disorder much faster. So in other words, my viewpoint on this is still one of, uh, it comes down to a personal decision as to how much can, I mean, do you have the ability to live with uncertainty or would you rather choose to not know and be in bliss? There could, be a, there could be a middle ground as well. Let's play devil's advocate. The best thing for society would be to lie to everyone, assuming they wouldn't talk. You have a high risk for uh, heart attack and lung cancer and being obese and yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. Could you, could you fear force people into becoming better versions of themselves? It's kind of, the, it's kind of the flip side of the question. And I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, so like uh, your question is the... Um... If 23andMe said you had higher risk for everything that was negative, that correlated to whatever, whatever correlated to giving you a better life. So they tell you the things you want to avoid, just generally speaking, like these are the FDA recommendations. If you were to go by the recommendations, right. they try to scare you into going for, forward with those recommendations, so to speak. You know what? That is, I mean, <laughs> it, with all of these kinds of things, anytime there is, you know, I look at all of these uh, things as, as coins, which is there's always two sides to the coin. You cannot have one without the other. That would be virtually impossible with the human psyche that is there. So yes, it is possible to um, to simply advocate for something to scare people into following one kind of uh, of routine. But on the other hand, it is you know like this is why we also have have an educated society. Like we emphasize scientific education simply for the fact that what scientific education entails is you're empowering each individual to think for themselves. So in other words, it doesn't matter whether the information comes from me as a scientist or any authority figure. It doesn't matter who the person's conveying the message is. Like you have to examine the data for yourselves. You have to look at the arguments and then you have to make an informed decision for yourself. And the goal of scientific education is to teach people how to develop those critical thinking tools. So you say that as a scientist, but I would argue that the majority of people listen to what they're told, especially by the ones who they feel have the authority or the knowledge. Most people, I would say, don't question those type of things. No, no, no. You're absolutely correct. I 100% agree with you on that. But this is why I'm also saying, I mean, like, in other words, this is why I'm also a major proponent of, uh, of a trust for scientific education. The, the whole idea of science is, in my mind, is not uh, necessarily like depending on which country you're having this conversation with, it's kind of like uh, whether you're challenging the views of religion or this or that. But basically for me, what I gained the most from my journey as a scientist is I have learned to examine things for myself. And it doesn't matter who the person is. It may, 
a piece of information simply because it comes from the mouth of a Nobel Prize winning scientist doesn't automatically make it correct. So I will accept it temporarily, but then I will have to examine those arguments myself. And if it makes sense to me, then it is something that will, that will result in an action that I take. If it doesn't make sense to me, I won't take any action. And that is how that, and if a society acts like that, then my feeling is each person will make an educated decision for themselves. And most importantly, I'd like to emphasize the word an educated decision because they will be able to explain why they choose to do something, why they do not choose to do something. And, and that will give them a sense of clarity that you wouldn't have otherwise if you simply accept something. I think so. I think one of the biggest problems is having a, a very slight grasp of a certain concept and feeling that you're able to make an informed decision. I think that happens to a lot of people is they kind of glimpse the headlines and, oh, I know this and I know that. I know I, I, everyone oh, no, has a tendency. Sure. I have a tendency. We all do. No, that's, the, that's exactly the, uh, the difference between knowing about something and knowing something. And it's a, it's a very important and we, and we generally make the error in thinking that, that a label actually stands for the thing in and of itself. So, for, like, for example, CRISPR is now um, all over the news and everything. And people, you know, like you can watch a two-minute YouTube video and kind of think that you understand CRISPR. And I was actually watching not too long ago a video of a guy who uh, is in the States and he injects himself with CRISPR-based stuff. So he's like, he's called himself a biohacker and he understands how CRISPR works. And he, you know, like now, you, you know, like you can get these do-it-yourself kits off the internet. So there are people who can illegally give you anything. And so this is one of those people who thinks he can, he understands CRISPR and he understands the, what it means to edit your gene. However, you know, like it's very clear that uh, even the most experienced scientists are only now beginning to understand some of the larger ramifications of CRISPR. So you know, with the advent of technology and social media and stuff, it is also, it's possible for a lot of people to make the mistake of thinking that you know something just by quickly gathering a few information tips about it. Which often pulls you into into charlatanism or into other things that we don't want to jump into necessarily on this podcast. What technologies are you most excited about or interested in? That's a good question. Oh, what technologies am I most interested in? I feel like I'm most interested in the technologies that are getting us closer to personalized medicine. And this is not necessarily a single technology, but a group of technologies that are simultaneously being pushed. So for example, we have the ability to map out what we know in the field called global gene interactions in a cell. We now have the technology to fine-tune CRISPR and make targeted edits in the DNA. We have the technology to sequence DNA, make it more accessible. But what I'm also looking forward to is what is going to happen from the realm of, of the pharmaceutical companies that makes the development of drugs more efficient and more cheap because that is one area, that's one frontier we haven't scaled yet. Because even today, for a single drug to get FDA approved and to be available in the market, it goes through years and years and years of processing and analysis. But I feel like with some of these technologies in the horizon, that process can be significantly scaled down. And if that happens, we might have more life-changing, life-saving drugs available much faster. Well, it's a huge problem because for pharma, it costs, what, $100 million to get a drug to market or something exactly. similar? So you can only talk... Exactly. Yeah, you can only target billion dollar plus drugs, which means simple things like eat your fruits and veggies, guys, isn't really what we emphasize because it's hard to make money. Exactly. And also, the you know, the kind of, uh, it's a bittersweet thing. In a sense, it's uh, the plus side is as scientists, we have more knowledge to 
many drugs that are there in, in clinical trials and in the, it's kind of locked within pharmaceutical companies that are highly effective and they work so well. But before they come to market, it's actually going to be a, another 10 years at least. So because it's just not, the technology is just not available and the resources are not there to scale it up and to make it generally available to the public. So less than 0.1% of the population might have access to those kinds of drugs and that too only on a trial basis. Like it's like a controlled experimental treatment. Whereas, you know, I think with the advent of uh, technology, we can cut down those times much faster and make these drugs more accessible. Yeah, we had Lee Cronin on. He's working on personalized uh, 3D printable molecular medicine so that we could very easily mass produce smaller quantities of medicine for mm, individuals. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating field. Uh, one more topic, and then I'm going to let, let you wrap up and start to get back to your stuff. I know you're busy saving the world and trying to, uh, trying to live forever, so to speak. So, so aging and longevity, what are the implications right now that we see in terms of how it plays in with CRISPR and genetic editing? And when do you see, when do you see some type of gene-based solution increasing human lifespan 5 to 10%? That's a good question. So for example, we, aging is something that's actually been under intense scientific scrutiny for at least uh, the past 20 years. And actually, this, uh, we've started to appreciate the role of certain genes in aging from the studies that came from, from a little worm that lives in the soil. So this is, not, this is a, a microscopic nematode that we call a C. elegans. And during the late 90s and early 2000s, we've learned a lot about the different genes that when you modify it, allows the worm to live for maybe like uh, six to seven times more than its normal lifespan. And these worms that go on to live these long lives, they're actually quite healthy and they move well and they're also reproductively active. So the, the interesting thing was we found furthermore that these genes that enable the worm to live longer are also shared in higher animals that include us. So we've found these genes in mice. We've, have, uh, we've uh, identified a lot of these genes in humans as well. And of course, these genes, they're not exactly the same in that they work a little different in humans and in mice compared to worms. But the fact that they exist and they're doing similar functions gave us a lot of hope that by adjusting the activity of certain genes, it is possible that we can slow down the aging process of our tissues. And, and there are actually a couple of big companies in the States that have come up with a lot of uh, leads on drugs that can be taken uh, and also like products that can be applied to your skin that will uh, help rejuvenate your molecule, I mean, your cells and, and slow down the aging process. So as far as using CRISPR to slow down aging, my feeling is with this, what CRISPR does is basically it gives, you know, it's a tool. So it goes back to if you've identified a particular gene that you have tested in animal models and has significantly enhanced the longevity and has slowed down the aging process, then we can use a CRISPR-based approach to introduce modifications into the existing form of that gene in our cells. And now this cell will start to, to behave differently such that it can mimic those effects that we see in these animal models and actually help the cell to survive and cope with stress better. Because one of the things that we see that greatly accelerates the aging process is your cell's ability to deal with stress. Just like we go through stress, the cell in its native environment faces a lot of uh, different kinds of stress in its, in its vicinity. And some of these genetic tools or modifications that we make can tweak the cell's ability to cope with the stress better. And the cell that is able to cope with stress better ages more slowly. Because literally aging is a process of 
tear, I mean, it's a question of wear and tear of, our, of the ends of our DNA. And the more we accelerate it, the faster we age. That's why, in general, as you know, for us, it's, you know, we do a lot of these stress-reducing activities like yoga, meditation, all of that. And ultimately, they're geared towards slowing down aging. Because one thing I think humans have intuitively understood for uh, generations is that the less stressed we become, the more slowly we age. I think and the less negative of a reaction we have to our stress. I saw, I saw a really interesting TED Talk that pointed out the fact that the, the difference between people that aged faster and people that didn't, that were under stress, wasn't necessarily the amount of stress they were under. It was whether or not they believed that stress shortened their life. Because when they believed it, it created a flywheel of stress that essentially didn't turn, turn off. No, for sure. The way you respond to stress absolutely has an impact, I think, on, on your aging process. Like, um, this is something that, uh, you know, it, I, I think this is like the core of uh, what goes into practices of, of meditation and also like contemplation. And, you know, this forms the bedrock, I think, of uh, basically most people's spiritual pursuits. Because by contemplating your life and also like looking into, into spiritual practices, I think what basically comes across is you develop a healthy attitude towards facing challenges. You look at challenges as challenges and not as as problems. And I think that goes, I mean, I think that kind of echoes what you just said. It's how you handle these negative situations that's going to have a telltale effect on stress. This is a dangerous route. I could see it going down a continuously different rabbit hole. So I'm going to start to wrap things up because we've been going for a while. If you could have one genetic editing superpower, what would you want and why? I personally would give my, I would make sure that I, my telomeres and my DNA never shorten. So in other words, the telomeres are the ends of your DNA. And when they get eroded, your cell starts to go into wear and tear mode. And that's the uh, beginning of aging, cancer, and a whole bunch of uh, unpleasant situations. So I would give myself telomeres of steel. Elizabeth Blackburn would love it. Exactly. Keep them always going. The forever man. I, you might be exactly. that completely end aging through that. And it's a, uh... There's so many different things that are coming up. It's so interesting. It's an incredible space. Ashwin. I know. I'm very excited for this. It's, uh, it's going to be a great future. What do you want to leave people with? A quote, a call to action, something you want them to look into? You know, I think I would um, leave them with a call of ac- for action. And this, will, this goes back to what, what we discussed earlier. I would say to people, you know what? No matter what you hear, think for yourself. Look at the evidence for yourself. And unless something, may, unless it makes sense to you, do not buy it. This is pertinent for the times we live in. Ashwin, thanks so much for coming on, discussing, sharing. It's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. Where's the best place for people to connect? Thank you so much for having me, Matt. Well, people can reach me on my LinkedIn. And you know what? I think that would be the best place to connect. I'm pretty much off most uh, social media. So LinkedIn is something that I actively use. You're doing those black market genetic hacks for people that are looking to get smarter, right? <laughs> you never know. You never know. Thanks so much for coming on today, Ashwin. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Hope this has been fun. Ever notice how you listen to a podcast and the host is reading two or three minutes of ads at the beginning of every episode and at the end? I know I have to skip two or three minutes into a podcast just to get to the good stuff. I hate that. I'm sure you do too. The thing is, 
Podcasts need to survive, and advertising seems to be the way to do it. The only problem is their trust and transparency that's provided from the podcasting medium, the you-to-me, you-to-us message, gets distorted. If we're constantly trying to sell you a nice new mattress or some conferencing software, can you really trust what we're talking about on the podcast and that we're being open and honest and not going with the whims of whatever our advertising may say? We think that that is impossible and that the advertising ecosystem is destroying our society as we know it. We at Fringe FM want to fight this, and we think that if you believe in the better world and mission that we're trying to produce, then you would too. Did you know you can make a tax-deductible donation to Fringe FM? Fringe FM is fiscally sponsored by a 501c3 nonprofit. Advancing Science Worldwide wanted to work with us because of our mission of trying to make the world better through science and education. If you guys believe in what we do, please visit fringe.fm slash give, where you can make a tax-deductible donation, learn more about our organization, and find out any additional details you may need to be able to write this off for taxes. If you think that this makes your money go further than passing it over to the tax guy, then we would love if you would consider supporting Fringe FM. Again, that's fringe.fm slash give for more details. And thank you so much for your support if you want more of fringe fm you can subscribe to the podcast on itunes or go to fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics cryptocurrency longevity ai space vr and much much more and you can follow me on twitter at it's matt ward if you enjoyed the show please leave a quick review in itunes to help more people discover fringe fm